Who cares about the perception? They're the Supreme Court. They get to say and do whatever they want, and they don't have to abide by any rules because they can find any rule they want unconstitutional. <laughs> Check and mate, sir. Check and mate. That's, that is why. You're just jealous. Anthony Weiner, you are just jealous of the Supreme Court. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 41 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. A few weeks ago on the radio, I was making a point about how the public confidence in all institutions of American life had been taking a hit in recent years. As, in my, as is my want, I I quoted a statistic from a recent poll on the waning confidence in the Supreme Court. Just 18% of Americans reported having a great deal of confidence in the, in the court in 2022, and that was down from 26% in 2021, 18%. The same survey reported that 36% had hardly any confidence in the court at all. It elicited an angry text from a regular listener who accused me of making up the statistic and demanding that I stop spewing what he called DNC talking points. For the record, the poll was a well-respected one called the General Social Survey, and it had been asking this question annually since 1973. It's conducted by the Associated Press and the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. I got back to the listener who demanded my source, and he was still incredulous, and he said to me, I bet 50% of the country agrees with the court. Now, I tried to explain that the question was about a different thing, confidence in rather than agreement with, but it did get me thinking about how much it really matters how people view the courts. How much do we want courts following public sentiment after all? We have the two other branches of government for that. Congress and the presidency is where we make sure that the will of the majority is done in our republic. The courts, and especially the Supreme Court, are supposed to do the things that are not so popular, like protect the rights of the minority, even if it's a very unpopular minority, or even if it disrupts the social order. Courts upholding separate but equal or the internment of Japanese, they were very popular in a lot of quarters, but those decisions are also major stains on the reputation of the high court. Perhaps also the notion of confidence in the Supreme Court has gotten tied up with this coordinated attack on the rule of law in the United States. If millions of people support and believe Donald Trump in his attacks on law enforcement and the judiciary, and those attacks are echoed by his allies at all levels of politics and on their media outlets, then maybe that is contributing to the overall decline in credibility of all organs of justice in America, including the Supreme Court. But for the confidence to be this low, at least some of the blame has to go to the actions of members of the court. First, the obvious reason for the dreadfully low confidence in the court must stem from the fact that this court gave at least half the citizens of our country a reason to believe they shouldn't be confident in the court to protect their rights. With the Dobbs decision, this court did something no other court in history has done, taken away a constitutional right that had been previously granted. But even that doesn't probably account for the dreadful approval of this court. After all, a lot of Americans like the Dobbs decision, not a, not a majority for sure, but a lot. It is clear that it is not just the decisions of the court that Americans are repelled by. It is the sense that the court has become just another group of out-of-touch elites that are running our lives and who act like the rules don't apply to them. Does that seem like a bit too hot? Well, let's look at just the last few months of revelations. There was a ProPublica story about how billionaire Harlan Crow 
was paying for luxury trips for Justice Thomas. Those trips also featured leaders of the Federalist Society, a group who is dedicated to influencing the court. They were not reported as a seemingly required on Thomas's disclosure forms. Then a follow-up to the ProPublica case about how Crow also paid for tuition at a private school for a young man who Thomas was raising. Crow also used his wealth to purchase a house and land from the Thomas family at an inflated price. Similar news also appeared in the last few months about a different billionaire paying also for luxury trips, this time for Justice Alito. And then there was the early leak of the Stobbs decision, which led to other questions because the Supreme Court has always been seen and certainly believes itself to be a place that is held together, if not by a written code of conduct, but by a sort of mutual agreement to act with integrity and honor. And that leak of the Dobbs decision certainly showed that that wasn't still in place. And then there was a whistleblower that came out a couple of months ago revealing that as an anti-abortion activist, it was known that you can influence the court by joining the Historical Society of the Supreme Court or something like that. His efforts were rewarded by being told in advance about the Hobby Lobby decision in 2014, which gave him, as an anti-abortion activist, a head start on fundraising and a public relations push. And in case you think this is just about right-wingers, Justice Sotomayor's staff um, has often prodded public institutions that have hosted the justice to buy her memoir of children's books, works that have earned her at least $3.7 million since she joined the court in 2009. Now, the justices have responses to each of these ethics mini-scandals. Even the responses seem to show that they don't have much awareness. Justice Thomas's camp explained that the activist conservative billionaire who purchased his mom's house um, for way over the market value did so because of the historic significance of the house that Thomas grew up in and about the, that same billionaire paying the tuition of about $150,000 at a private boarding school for Thomas's teenage grandnephew, who I said Thomas has kind of raised as their son. How did he respond to that? Well, apparently it was part of a strategy on the part of Harlan Crow to lift up underprivileged African-American kids. And the trips? Well, they weren't disclosed because, heck, it was just Thomas and his pals hanging out. That doesn't need to be disclosed, does it? Justice Alito, he's a special one. He provided explanations that are much more the legal and PR versions of basically go fuck yourself. He started out with the rather creative response of saying that taking flights on private jet from billionaires is not really a thing of value that he must disclose because, wait for it here, the seat would have been empty, he says, as he had he not been sitting in it, and therefore it had no value. The Sotomayor response was basically, yep, I did it, but tough. I'm going to read you, just to make you, you know, realize that they all kind of talk like this. This is the quote from the court, okay? When Sotomayor is invited to, part, to participate in book programs, staff, uh, I'm sorry, chamber staff recommends the number of books for an organization to order based on the size of the audience so as not to disappoint the attendees who may anticipate books being available at the event. This is the statement coming from the court defending Sotomayor using her staff to sell her books. The court said, I love it. She's not just using court staff here to help people buy her books, but also to take, make the statement for her. Nothing to see here, I guess. So what is the answer around ethics? Well, some in Congress have suggested the idea of having ethics rules for the only court in the country that doesn't have them. The Senate Judiciary Committee last week, under the leadership of Sheldon Whitehouse of, of Rhode Island, passed out of committee ethics legislation that would require the courts to adopt a code of conduct for justices and a system for receiving and evaluating complaints of judicial misconduct, just like every lower court has. 
The Republicans on the committee all voted against it, and the bill is probably dead. The GOP argue that most of this effort was not about ethics, but about the fact that Democrats are unhappy with the rulings of this court. They essentially protected the majority here. Interestingly, and maybe more telling, is that Justice Alito took to the pages of the Wall Street Journal to make a rather crazy defense of his actions, or more precisely, why Congress couldn't do anything about it. Here is his quote from an interview that he gave to the Wall Street Journal. Quote, I know this is a controversial view, but I'm willing to say it. No provision of the Constitution gives them, Congress, the authority to regulate the Supreme Court. And then for emphasis, he says, period. Well, close quote. You would be excused if you read a member of the Supreme Court declare something is not in the Constitution and believe it, but, but it's very wrong, and it's obviously wrong. Article 3 of the Constitution is where the powers and limitations on the court arises. And herewith, I'm going to use that word because we're talking about the court, I'm going to use herewith, not a word I often use, is the full text of Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2, which is the the, uh, uh, the clause is about the Supreme Court jurisdiction. I'm going to read you the whole thing, and I'm going to leave you the emphasis in the part that you need to emphasize. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and to fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as Congress shall make. That is a clause not in deep buried in the Constitution. That's in Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2. Now, you would imagine that Justice Alito would know that. Nearly everything we know about the modern court has been the result of that section at the end, regulations the Congress shall make. Just to be clear, without legislation enacted by Congress, the Supreme Court would have one justice because the size of the court was decided by Congress. It would have no budget. It would have no building to meet in. It would have no staff, it would have no library, and no cases to resolve other than interstate disputes because it is Congress that tells them what cases are under its review. And if you or Justice Alito need a more contemporary reminder of the ability of Congress to make rules for the court, thanks to a bipartisan law that was passed decades ago, the justice on this past June 7th released their annual disclosures, although two of them did get extensions. As wrong as Alito was, His Wall Street Journal interview was an example of another norm being broken. Justices don't usually decide cases before they heard them. Congress's power to create ethics guidelines for the court may indeed become a court fight in and of itself, yet here is Alito ruling on the case on the pages of a Rupert Murdoch newspaper. But the chef's kiss of this whole thing is what Alito is that Alito had a co-author of this rebuttal interview in the Wall Street Journal. I've already mentioned that a couple of times for emphasis. But the guy who did the interview with him is the lawyer for Leonard Leo, the prominent conservative activist who was reportedly organizing the fishing trip in Alaska that Alito attended alongside his hedge fund billionaire. So think about how how small the world is in the world of influencing the justices that the same guy that arranged the trip is also the guy that did the interview in the Wall Street Journal and also the guy making the argument that Alito doesn't have to report to anyone about his ethics. But getting back to the proposal, I don't think that doing what virtually every other office in the government does in any way violates the separation of powers. I also believe that it's right to kind of keep the pressure on, even though it looks like this law might not become, this bill might not become law. 
because there are members of the court, and I think even Chief, the Chief Justice Roberts, who sees this as a legitimate issue. I mean, it's not revolutionary. An ethics office where it is the obligation of members of the Supreme Court to consult on ambiguities regarding just basic things about disclosure. These ethics offices exist in every federal agency. We had one in Congress. From the lowest federal employee to cabinet officials. If you're not sure about your ethical obligations, when a billionaire offers to a seat on a private plane, and if you want to ask your staff to sell your books, for example, there are hotlines you call and experts that can give you guidance. Right now, you have justices saying, uh, so there's this gift. I really want to take it. And so I read the rules this way and that way. And so voila, I'm allowed to take the trip and not report it. Case closed. As I said, I do think Justice Roberts really does seem to care about the legitimacy of the court. And I think this actually is actually a threat to this, all of this action by Congress. So maybe the hearings in the bill will get them to act. But the much tougher nut to crack in terms of ethics on our nation's highest courts is the issue of recusal. And I've been on this case for quite some time. That cut you heard at the very top of the show was Stephen Colbert, then in character for the Colbert Report, asking me about an effort that I had started in 2011 to get Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from consideration of challenges to the Obamacare law. It seemed to me like an open and shut case. His wife, Ginny, was working as a lobbyist and raising money to overturn the Obamacare law. Income from those efforts was put in their bank account, and it was conveniently left off his financial disclosure forms. But unlike all of the other courts below, there are no rules governing the appearance of conflict that would require recusal. It's entirely up to the individual member. It got even more problematic when there was a case where the January 6th committee wanted the National Archives to turn over text messages from around the period of the insurrection. Among those messages were ones to and from Ginny Thomas, not only didn't he recuse himself, but he was the lone dissent in an 8-to-1 decision to give Congress access to the messages. It was literally a case about his wife. To me, this is the bigger problem and the harder one to solve. The sheer same shamelessness that seems to be a modern byproduct of the lifetime appointment and the era of everyone is partisan. Finding out the justices of the Supreme Court are elites that have rich people fly them around on private jets and they're wined and dined, yeah, it's galling, but I'm not super surprised by it. The fact that there is no rule or law that requires a justice to accuse him or herself is crazy. So what's the answer to this larger problem and maybe the other problems as well? There is one kicking around that seems not only reasonable, but also sort of doable. No constitutional amendment necessary, it's just a law. It's a proposal by a group called Fix the Court, and it proposes the compelling answer of an 18-year term limit for members of the court, and it would solve two big problems. One, justices are just hanging around too long. The Supreme Court justice now serves an average of um, 28 years and are gaming their retirements. Life tenure seems to give justices the perverse incentive to stay on the court until a president with whom they agree sits in the Oval Office, meaning that some hold on to their seats past their intellectual prime and then wait for the quote-unquote right person to get elected to the White House. And then there's the second problem, that the nomination process has become a joke. It's no longer a priority to find the best candidate for the job who will serve with integrity, who has broad life experience. Instead, the party in charge scrambles to find the youngest, often most ideological nominee, who at the same time knows the right things to say at a confirmation hearing, in order to control the seat for decades to come. A single standard 18-year-old term 
would kind of restore limits to the most powerful, least accountable branch of the American government. So how would it work? Well, each new justice would be added every other year. And since there are nine justices every two years, that would be 18. It would take 18 years to reach the end of the cycle. Now, it would mean that for a while, until you started having guys age out, for a while, there would be more than the nine justices on the court. Appointments would become predictable exercises, not embarrassing partisan spectacles. And you might be saying, well, is this constitutional to make someone leave? The Constitution does not expressly grant life tenure to Supreme Court justices. Rather, this idea has been derived from the language that the judges and justices, quote, shall hold their offices during good behavior, close quote. This proposal does not contravene this requirement, as the idea would be the justices would be then not forced out the door, but they'd be elevated to senior justices for life, and they would either serve on lower federal courts, as many retired justices have done, or filling in on the Supreme Court if there's an unexpected vacancy. By the way, the senior status thing, it's in the judiciary, it's very common, and it's the creation of Congress, and it's one that has been universally accepted as constitutional and a valid interpretation of Article 3. So there's more to it, importantly, like how you do this effort where justices come in. You're not going to fire anyone right away, but it's worth a read. Go to fixthecourt.com and you can read some of those details. It's not so much revolutionary as kind of evolutionary. And it it might be the solution if you think that only 18% of the country having confidence in the court is a problem worth solving. And we'll be right back with Ask Anthony. You know, there's this line of defense used by supporters and critics of Joe Biden that, helpfully for this segment, comes in the form of a question. This is the part of the show where I either take a question from our listener mail, or I take something that perhaps another host on the radio has said, or some person online, or just maybe it's a politician that I think needs to get clapped back at. But this question comes, as it frequently does, and it basically goes like this. If they can come for Donald Trump, is anyone safe from political and judicial persecution slash prosecution. And then it kind of goes sometimes with hand in hand with, and then on the other side of the coin, they're letting off Hunter Biden with a slap on the wrist. Um, I was asked this on the middle just this past Sunday. The middle is the radio show I do at two o'clock on Saturdays on 77 WABC. And it's also, you can stream it and get it as a podcast. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of all people, she joins the podcast this week to give her rather punchy response. I would also like to say that when evidence and proof of a crime is presented, no prosecution should be denied, no matter who the person is. Here, here, the gentle lady from North Carolina is the broken clock that accidentally is right every fortnight or so. And just to repeat what she said, I would, like, I would also like to say that when there's evidence and proof of a crime presented, no prosecution should be denied, no matter who the person is. Now, you might think, oh, she must be talking about her overlord, Donald Trump. I think she was referring to Hunter Biden in that case. I mean, that's one answer. I mean, that does say there should be no judgment used by prosecutors. But the answer I prefer to respond with is essentially a question. Whatever the motivation or the politics, if the president did the things alleged— should he be prosecuted? And usually when framed that way, the answer, even from the president's defenders, is usually a yes. Now, many of them have not read the indictment, but if I, well, the way I, I say it is, I like, just take any person 
and would they be indicted? And then the behavior that's that's outlined, and he's entitled to a presumption of innocence, and there'll be a trial. It's the same with Hunter Biden. With all the drama around the laptop and the salacious pictures and the unseemly business deals, if the question is, should people go to jail for not paying their taxes on time or lying about doing drugs on a gun application, it becomes a kind of a closer call. In both cases, a lot depends on whether and where you're getting your information about these cases. Yet another poll came out this week showing how seemingly indomitable Donald Trump is in the Republican primary. The poll's top-line finding is that Donald Trump leads uh, Ron DeSantis by overwhelming margins among these voters, which is a poll of registered Republicans and GOP-leaning independents. But the poll divided up the respondents to get the, to, uh, into those that get their information from Fox and those who get their information from more mainstream sources. Because I think one of the big questions being asked right now is, does, that, does it matter where you're getting your information? And clearly, according to these results, it does. 91% of those, 91%, who rely on Fox, do not think Donald Trump committed serious crimes, and only 5% think he did. Among those, again, these are Republicans, who rely on more mainstream uh, sources, those numbers are 52% think he committed serious crime, and 38% who think they did not. A large percentage of these voters, over, who are over 40%, according to the polling director, rely on Fox News or other similar types of right-wing media sources for their news, and voters who rely on, on, on these sources give answers that are very similar to Fox News viewers, like the OANs and the, whatever these other right-wing outlets are called. And the Hunter News filter slash bubble is even more intense. If you believe the things that are stated as facts about Hunter and Joe Biden, you would be excused for believing the cases about money laundering or spying or bribery. But in fairness, there's also a bit of Joe washing going on in other parts of the media. His answer about his involvement with Hunter has gone from, I've never spoken to him about it, to now they're saying from the White House podium that he's never participated in his business in any way. And now, just yesterday, a fairly friendly witnesses, a friendly to the Bidens, saying that the president hopped on the call on the phone a few times to say hello, but not talk business to some of the people that Hunter Biden was doing business with. And I have to tell you, this seems like the most plausible answer. Hunter wanted to show the Biden flex, and Joe helped out not by doing anything, but simply by saying hello was probably enough. I think the summary is that, in many ways, justice is different when you're a public figure. Don't I know it? But maybe just this one time, we should follow Marjorie Taylor Greene's advice. Just this once. And I want to thank you all for joining us again here on The Middle Unplug. I want to thank Eric Salas, our producer and sound designer. As I've said a few times, if you like this podcast, feel free to rate it, recommend it to other people. That's the way the word gets out. We've had steady growth of the people listening, and that's encouraging. And also, if you'd like to join into the radio show, that's every Saturday at 2 o'clock for an hour. And then Curtis Lewa and I are on, on left versus right on 3 to 4 o'clock. You can get all of these as episodes of podcasts in different streams. You've got to search for The Middle Unplug, and then for The Middle, and then for Left versus Right. And you can always reach out to me at wienerwabc at gmail.com, at Rep Wiener on Twitter, and Anthony D. Wiener on Threads. Wait a minute, did I say Twitter? I meant X. And I do appreciate all your support. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. <laughs>